welcome to the JMS Podcast with Jorge M. Sanchez. What's up, podcast listeners? Thank you for tuning in. We got a great guest. Today's guest is Jesus Beltran. He is a filmmaker from here um, and a very interesting guy. A lot to talk about. But before we get to him, we do have a Weird New World segment with Ryan Sudakran, where we talk about this technology known as the Neuro Network Transfer System which you'll be surprised and it's many applications and I'm still on the uh, I'm still on the uh, on the fence about if this is a good technology for our society and uh, for those who are listening for the first time you can subscribe to the JMS podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, Google Play and a variety of other apps you can also follow the JMS podcast on Twitter, Instagram and on Facebook. I highly, highly recommend you do it. I do put out some extra content on social media. And don't forget that you can also check out the JMS Podcast website. You're like, whoa, what's the website? Well, it's jmspodcast.com. It's that easy. Right at your fingertips. You just write it down or type it down, actually. I think it's the better way of putting it. Don't forget, you can also email me at jmspodcast at gmail.com. Got any questions, concerns, maybe you got recommendations on what guests you'd like to have on this podcast, you can do so at jmspodcast at gmail.com. You can support the podcast also on Patreon. I, I, having sponsors is always great. It really helps this machine continue. And I would appreciate anything, anything from a dollar, $5 to $15. And that's it. We'll keep it nice and simple for you. All right, here we go. Let's go chat with Ryan Sudakran and let's see what uh, the latest tech uh, that's uh, that's been on his mind. Here we go. Hang on tight. We're about to enter a whole new weird world. Wait, I think I messed that up. Can you do that again? Is that, is that okay with you guys? Good. All right. Buckle up. We're about to enter enter a brave. No, see, I already messed it up. Okay, uh, one more time. I promise. I promise. One more time. I'll get it right. All right, hang tight. <clears throat> hang on tight. We're about to enter a weird new world. Ah, see. Let's get to it. Welcome to one more episode of the Weird New World segment here with Ryan Sadakran. How you doing, Ryan? I'm doing good. How are you, Jorge? I'm doing all right. Just got to work. I'm trying to, you know, just get back down to earth right now. And uh, I'm, about, I'm happy to be here. You, you, you brought, you brought up an interesting subject. There's like a lot of uh, efforts in the AI field for um, trying to make artificial art. Uh, which is, you know, something that I think artists fear uh, dearly, <laughs> deeply. Well, the artists have it hard enough to like val- yeah. validate their art, and now there's a new technology coming out where uh, I, the way you explained it is that it's 
not an app, but a certain system where it can actually copycat styles of art. Yeah, so it's it's something called style transfer, a neural style transfer, and it's uh, essentially it's it's a way to grab uh, deeper patterns in in an artist's style and try to replicate them in works that are not you know made by that artist. So for an ex- for example, if you if you were to train this neural network. Um, which I'm sure is a word that a lot of people know, but essentially what a neural network is, is it's a type of, uh, it's, it's an algorithm that tries to, um, try to generate a pattern from in, from training data, right? Mm-hmm. So trying to find a deep pattern, but essentially what you do is you, you give it a bunch of training images on say like the works of Picasso, right? And Picasso, I mean, art critics would say that he has a pretty, like in certain periods of his, um, painting, he had pretty distinct style. So you would pick paintings that match that distinct style and train this neural network on those. And then you feed it an image that is not of Picasso, maybe a photograph or um, or another artist's painting. And then what it would do is it would take that those color combinations and those you know edges and shapes that Picasso would use and then impose it on this new painting. And in, in many examples, you can find really, really cool effects like if you take a picture of a tree now that tree looks like it's painted by picasso i mean some of them like look more interesting than others but just the fact that this technology exists is pretty interesting and now i think some people are trying to do movies like that like you film you film normal scenes and you just impose this kind of what it amounts to like a color filter but now it looks like it's being painted every frame and it just it adds for some cooler visual effects so i don't think artists have to worry about totally unique expressions being created by these um, algorithms just yet but this is another added toolkit for the eventual AI artist what the difference is now with this new technology is that it's being given to an AI to work on things so it's a much more faster uh, uh, process uh, as opposed to let's say the uh, classical rotoscoping or the or any other styles of filters that they used in film or music videos and etc or just you know other artists you know mani- uh, trying to you know pay homage to past artists but we're talking about a system here where you just it, if it, it just you know i guess in some ways almost automatically turns anything into a work of art yeah i mean uh, i of course, the, the definition of art is an, a nebulous one, but I think I, I will say this. What it does is it grabs patterns from something where a pattern is evident, from a bunch of training data where a pattern is evident, and then it just imposes that pattern onto something else. So it's simply just taking a pattern and putting it onto something else. Like if, say, I was an artist that... Um, I, I would poke like I would polka dot. There was that one famous artist that would polka dot all of his images, right? Mm-hmm. I f- forget the name, but imagine I, I had thousands, hundreds of thousands of paintings where I had just polka dotted everything. So this, what this algorithm would do is it would it would uh, look at all those images and grab that pattern without human beings explicitly telling it to grab that pattern. It would it has its own encoding to grab patterns. It would grab that pattern, and if I pass in an image of a dog, like a picture of a dog then it would try to replicate that using the visual patterns that it learned from my paintings. So essentially, I could draw a stick figure of a person, feed it into something that studied how Rembrandt would paint a person, and it'll come out like a Rembrandt. A Rembrandt stick figure, maybe. 
A Rembrandt stick figure. Of course, see, the thing is, it's not it's not perfect, so you would have to give it certain types of images, like certain things. You'll get, depending on the type of image you give it, you'll get a better result than other ones. And in all the yeah. papers that you see, they pick really nice results. But there was also a lot of garbage that comes out of it. How, how much of bad news is this for real artists? Or do you feel as more as, as more of a novelty thing? I think right now it's more of a novelty thing, but of course the field is growing, and then there are people in the know who are clever and will... F like, okay... The, I think people consume art because they're interested not only in the visual cue but in the story behind the art. And this is something that has absolutely no story behind it, right? There is no sort of uh, commentary on a social trend in, in the world. There's no, uh, you know, background of struggle. There's nothing there. This is a very shallow implementation. It, it does um, produce some cool visuals and that could be of use to like people in the visual effects industry and you know computer animators but as far as like normal art consumption in a gallery unless the gallery is like art made by robots unless that's the specific purpose of the gallery i don't see it putting any like huge artists out of jobs most of them don't have jobs anyway so i don't think it's a a worry just yet but <laughs> but i think you know i don't think i don't think it is um i don't think it's a a a, a like a the last nail in the coffin for the creative arts i think that this is just a tool. Well, I feel like it, it, it's probably going to be used mostly as a alternative choice. Where here you could have an actual Picasso painting, or you could have, you know, the, um, the what's like the Safeway brand of like Picasso. You know what I'm talking about? Like the, 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 there's like the major brand. And yeah, there's yeah. Like so the, like the great value Picasso. Yeah, the great value brand art that you could purchase. Yeah, so you know what, what it could do is... Um, what I really see is like Facebook might use this as like another way of Instagram filtering or something like that, right? Like it's a, it's a filter. It's yeah. just it's just an interactive thing you can do at the, the the touch of a finger. So like it's not it's not some highbrow artistic endeavor, but it is it is just a cool implementation of, of software. I think. Now, wouldn't this make it harder for artists in a sense that now? It's like, what's the point of learning these skills if you could easily do these skills via uh, digital? I mean, that that's the choice of the artist, right? I, I think, um, like, I've seen artists that specialize in, like, constructing things out of toothpicks, right? Like, I think art is such a discipline where you're only going to want to learn things that you want to do. So if someone sees that you can replicate the brush strokes of uh, Van Gogh using this algorithm... And they're satisfied with that, that's up to them. But if there's someone who's really into painting, then I think they're going to learn it regardless, right? Because I, I think people go into art not to find a career, but to follow a passion. Now, besides for the creative field, is there any other functions for this uh, algorithm for AIs to use? Well, the, the basis of the algorithm is similar to a lot of, like, image detection stuff. So, um, uh, the, this is actually in use already, like, in China... They use the, the same, like, architecture neural network to con what they call a convolutional neural network. So it's really good at uh, finding patterns and images. And so they use this to actually detect faces with cameras and to detect motion and identify objects. And this is a readily available thing. In fact, you could download uh, this, the, the libraries today and just use a webcam and be able to detect your face and your glasses and your headphones. Like, this is already pretty readily available. So that technology is incredibly practical. It is the same technology, same technology. currently being used also in porn to put uh, yeah, actor, yeah. actresses' face yeah. deep in face. porn stars. Deep face. That is, that is the exact same technology, yeah. I mean, there's some slight changes there, but yeah. The social media giant Facebook 
says it has it has over a billion monthly users, as you probably know. And there's that's a lot of beach photos, engagement pictures, and updates on what you are having for dinner. But did you know Facebook has a new program that uses facial recognition to find out who all those faces are? in your photos. It's called DeepFace. The program was developed in-house and claims it can determine with a 97% accuracy whether two photographed faces are of the same person. Facebook, of course, gives users the option whether to, to tag the person or not, but if you choose not to, to be tagged, it, it still knows where, who you are. Now, I get it. A lot of this was formed, you know, for the expression of art and filtering and all that stuff on social media. But don't you feel there's a bit of a danger here once we apply it to manipulation of, of images of, of human beings? And, for example, for the porn case, it's like it's pretty. I mean, I will admit I, t I did take a look at the video yeah, and it's yeah, pretty yeah. damn close. I mean, you could tell. It's like, close. It's close. Yeah. But it, it, it comes to a point where you could you, someone could easily be framed so, for something they didn't do. Yes. Yeah, so that's that is a legitimate danger. And it's actually uh, it's exacerbated by the fact that you not only can replicate images perfectly, not, look, semi perfectly. Then it's not perfect yet. It could be. But you not only can replicate video images of a person's face and map their motion but you can also almost like perfectly like there's some samples online replicate their voice like you can train a network on on like obama's voice and then give it a text sentence and have obama say it with the same intonation and voice and like pacing as obama would say it. like even pauses so like when when those technologies independently come to fruition that's the problem with technologies that you know, you have you have great things that can happen with it, but you can have like people framing politicians, or you can you can have terrible things happen with it. You can have people. But is, is it the same tech? I'm talking. Is it the same algorithm we're talking it's, about? It's okay. It's it's it's. They're all trained with this this mathematical structure called a neural network. Okay. Uh, they're each neural network for each of these things is slightly different, but they're all being trained with that. So neural networks and this other type of machine learning called reinforcement learning are kind of the the big. Uh, pushes in AI research and and so they're, they're they're these specific types of mathematical structures and and they all kind of share the same backbone but each of them is slightly technically different is is there a certain organization or company that's kind of pushing this forward for this technology? Uh, Google Facebook Alibaba and Baidu are kind of I think the f and, and like uh, uh, open AI like Tesla that like those those like huge it's all huge companies with massive amount of uh, research money that are pushing it the most but there's also a lot of startups a lot of companies are getting into this field it's very very hot right now and it's either for the, the social media creative engagement or for surveillance i would say the most money is coming from uh targeted advertisements so if you have a company that is working on ai for targeted advertising that is what is going to be the most interesting to a lot of these companies is this that oh, I see. so like if you walk into a store and recognize your face and be, and be like oh this is this person and this person Not usually even, shops these well, things so that that is a little more advanced but it's it's as simple as this it's like you, how google knows like or netflix knows what movies you like right based on the information it doesn't it always gives me shitty yeah, recommendations but it will, it's trying to learn based on or amazon amazon's recommendation engine right the products you buy it's going to give you something related to that and also like your phone your you know your your iphone actually is on a lot of the time and sometimes when you say stuff around it, especially if the facebook app is on your iphone if you say like 
if you start talking face the app will recognize some of the words you say and present you ads based on hold that. on hold on you're telling me that you can have your iphone that could be uh listening into your conversations with other people it without is. being on it no i mean i mean it'd be on it'll be but, on but, it'll be on. but you're not actively on it no 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 so it'll be eavesdropping what you're saying yeah i think there's a big fear that that is happening i think with the facebook app it is happening you can fact check me on that but i'm pretty sure it is happening but neural networks for everything I told you for like grabbing these patterns, those are all neural networks. Like trying to figure out what Obama sounds like, that's a neural network. Trying to figure out uh, the style of Van Gogh and replace it, that's a neural network. Mm-hmm. Self-driving cars, image processing, anything that like you're trying to understand images is a convolutional neural network. Hmm. But yeah, the underlying technology behind a lot of these learning or a lot of these uh, machine learning algorithms, the big ones. Uh, are no networks there's so many there's like just a lot of mich- different machine learning algorithms but the most popular one i'd say is probably no network. what is the biggest challenges with this thing right now it's- yeah yeah it's a hot field and people are trying to pioneer it in any way they can and make money from it i mean it 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 is very very big um the one issue is that a lot like you need a lot of data to to do get good results from this stuff so that's why the companies like google and facebook and amazon all these companies they have a lot of data so they can do the best research in this field simply because they own the data right it's it's like uh if you own like you can't be a i can't come and be a steel industry now because i don't own the raw material i don't have access to the raw material that's owned by all these big conglomerates right so owning the data is like owning the raw materials hmm. for this industry. So, like, th- there are big pushes. Like, and and in fact, I think Google, their strategies, any other small company that is making big waves in AI, right? They'll Google will buy them out, and Google has enough money to like really buy them out, like really like convince the CEO, like you don't have to work anymore. Come with us, uh-huh. and like they'll pay them so much where it's like. Now they're just gonna all of that in the IP, that intellectual property, will just be towards Google. Like so, if if that startup had any sort of big goals that were like really you know crazy out there, it's quite possible that they stopped following that goal because they got all this money. But it is interesting that like there, it's it's essentially a, a type of monopoly, uh, but from like Google and Amazon. Oh, careful! Facebook. They might be listening in now. They probably are, dude. I think, right. but but what we're nothing compared to like they don't give a shit. <laughs> I, we're not even conspiring. It doesn't matter. Actually, I found out there's some Apple Apple employees who listen to the JMS podcast. So wait, how'd you really? Yeah, oh, yeah. All right, believe well. it or not. But uh, all right, man. Closing statements. The big theme of because uh, we started with it being applied with art. Yeah. So here's here's my my internal fascination with it is that there is a lot of things that in our life, in our human experience, that we think is like too complex for a machine to do. But then the beauty of any of this stuff is that you can break down anything to some sort of pattern, right? Like even art, which seems like it comes from like the the depth of human experience. A lot of that stuff is humans do, do have an intimate relationship with patterns, right? We have an intimate relationship with like color, palettes, and with shapes. When you break down a lot of complex creative forms they just boil down to different shapes and colors and in styles and 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 those things can be seen multiple times and and if there is a pattern i think a well-tuned algorithm can find it but i don't think that it's replacing artists because i think art is more than simply just 
the visual. Well, not yet, because like, in the car we were talking about this earlier, and the idea of how much is imagination a, a factor here. And like you said, right now with the AI, they don't really have imagination. They only have you know specific problem-solving tools to use. Yeah. But it's like once we reach that mark where we give these things you know a, a way to express themselves or the way they imagine it, then uh, then it's like it's like a little worrisome. Well, is it though? Because think of it like this, right? Uh, every artist has their own different way of expressing it. So maybe th- there's no no way of saying that a machine will ex- quote unquote express it better than a human. If it has the ability of expression, it's going to express it based on its experience. And what is the experience of a machine, right? Like a lot of people consume art from an artist because they relate to that artist or they feel what that artist was feeling, right? Like, like it. Like for example, in stand up, right? What, why? What is appealing in listening to a robot except for the novelty? You you like comedians who you can relate to in some way, right? Just like with art, the product of their art describes something about them and their social milieu, whatever. So if you're like a robot is not able to come, like a robot will come up with something based on its own experience, and sometimes that experience might not be like interesting to human beings. So I I think that there is still like enough difference between between the two. I don't think there's a danger. All right, man. As always, interesting stuff. Yeah. Thanks for stopping by, man. Yeah, it was a pleasure. How do y'all feel about the AI having this neural network style transfer? Are you for it, against it, or do you just don't care? Maybe you're like, you know what, it's the dawn of a new age, and yes, the technological overlords can do whatever they want. Let me know. Send me an email at jmspodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear your opinion about it. Very interesting, very interesting. I, I gotta recommend you guys to go Google it. And uh, there's like a whole just plethora of like stuff to like, it's like a rabbit hole of like, oh my God, this thing's a, it's huge. The, this kind of power is, can be applied to so many, so many great things, but at the same time, so many not so great things. And I think the, the most latest uh, controversy Facebook has gone through, uh, I think it's a, it's a part of that. It's a part of that. All right, let's move on to our main guest. Today's guest is Jesus Beltran. Uh, I mentioned in the intro that he's a filmmaker, but he's also a podcaster. He has a great network. Uh, that's how I got wind of him. Uh, you can, it's both on YouTube, and they have his own website. It's called Desmadre. It's, uh, it is Spanish, and I, I recommend you guys check it out. It's pretty entertaining, and yeah, they got some great content available. And uh, it was great talking to him. It's great to pick his brain a bit and see what he's all about. And he's a real cool guy. In the beginning of the conversation, we started talking about Dan Auerbach. And I brought up that he works with a uh, African musician. And at the time, I couldn't remember who it was. And I just, you know, had to validate that I, I, I knew. 
I felt like, oh, maybe Jorge was bullshitting. I wasn't. Uh, the artist that uh, Dan Arbach worked with is Bombino. Can't believe I forgot. So uh, I, I don't want you guys to be like, oh, Jorge, you're just bullshitting being a Dan Arbeck fan. No, I just I just set the record straight. For some reason, sometimes when I talk to people, I blink out often. All right. And uh, yeah, I just want to put it out there. I just want to, once again, um, make it clear that I somewhat know what I'm talking about. Somewhat. All right. Here's my talk with Jesus Beltran. I got that as a gift from a podcast guest because he knew I was a big fan of Dan Arbeck. Nice. Are you a fan of Dan Arbeck? I like him. Yeah. Yeah. He's yeah. worked with uh, there's a lot of Chicano artists down there. Um, yeah. Yeah. But, he, he, the Arcs. I know yeah. like a lot of his uh, backing band was a yeah. Chicanos from yeah. New York, I think. I, don't, I think he's in L.A. now. And, and he's he's uh, there's a visual artist who did a whole music video with him. Um, a Dan Arbeck song. I forget what song it was, but there's a, I forget the the artist, but he's a, a Chicano guy from L.A. and he does like really dope uh-huh. um, art stuff. And I think I know, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. It's like, um, oh god, it's like a boxing guy. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah he gives like all the characters kind of like these dog faces. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That dude's a Chicano dude. Um, and the, and the great thing is he also worked with uh, with Af- West African um, musician. Um, Something with a B. I'm, I'm, the point is that I, like some like Dan Arbeck, where he could not only like work on his artistic creative stuff, yeah. but also you know with others from yeah. different cultures. Yeah, yeah, he definitely does that. He pulls people in. He's pretty dope. Yeah. Um, cool. But yeah, but Jesus Beltran. Um, glad to have you here. Man. Thanks, man. Uh, I, I I I caught on with you because I was I. I you have an, a very interesting multimedia platform thing going on because you've been podcasting for a while. I think much longer than I have. No, no, not podcasting, but doing other video stuff. Um, yeah, this is. Uh, <laughs> we, we could figure out where to start that, but uh, certainly we started more as like. Uh, uh, if you're talking about desmadre, anyway. Yeah, specifically uh, desmadre. Specifically desmadre. Um, the Desmadre podcast. The Desmadre podcast, but I mean, the Desmadre podcast really started a, a year ago, a little more than a year ago. Um, and before then, we did a number of other projects that were more video related. And um, you know, we had the platform. I mean, you won't call it a platform or not, but we just started. So Desmadre was started with my cousin Sammy, um, Sammy Thompson Martinez. Who's mm-hmm. another filmmaker? Um, mostly at the time, so this is like 2014 that we started this madre, late 13. Um, basically, because I was doing a lot of other filmmaking stuff, more for like film festivals. So I was doing short films and doing stuff like that. I was working on a screenplay for a feature film, trying to raise money to make that. And I kind of was just getting really frustrated with uh, my ability to do that, to raise the money. <laughs> I know the feeling. Yeah. Um, so it was very uh, frustrating uh, because I felt like I had some traction as a filmmaker. I had a few uh, short films that played in festivals. I had a short film that played at Sundance. Are you referring to, uh, I have it here, uh, The Grass Grows Greener? The Grass Grows Green, yeah. In 2017? I mean, 2007. Seven, yeah, yeah. 2007. So that's, that <laughs> ten was years prior. Ten years, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, tell me about that short film and, and how was I experience getting accepted in Sundance? Man, it's been so long ago that... 
I mean, at the time, it was obviously amazing and kind of uh, game-changing from a quote-unquote career perspective. Um, it, it certainly, I got really lucky uh, because it was really my first real short that I did. Um, and yeah, I mean, at the time, it was very, I, I'll just say, it, I think it was very, my thinking was very methodical in terms of that project because I had... Uh, always wanted to go to film school or get into filmmaking in some way, but I and I started thinking about going back to to grad school to get like an MFA. And the more I looked into that, I was just like, damn, this is a lot of money. It's gonna be a lot of time. Yeah. Uh, no guarantees. Ton of film school graduates who aren't doing shit with their lives. You know, basically like you know you have to have a vision, you have to have a voice anyway. So at the time, I was like, you know, fuck it, I'm just gonna do a short film. And I had a list of ideas. And uh, that was when I chose. Um, and I had been going to Sundance as a, you know, as a fan. Oh, really? Uh, okay. Yeah. You, so, you, you did the travel? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So luckily, like, I have a friend from college whose parents own a home in uh, in Park City. And she started a thing after college that was like, come come hang with me during Sundance for a weekend. And she invited all of our fr- her friends and stuff. And so I had been going to Sundance since 2002, I think, maybe 2001. And I would go see films, I'd go to the short film programs, and I had an idea of kind of what it took because I was watching these things every year, and I would watch short films online when I could and stuff. And so I started, when I decided I didn't want to go to film school, I was like, well, I'll, I'll do a short film. I'll put aside some money, um, I'll save some money, and I'll take some time off and do a short film. So I started writing. That was an idea that I thought was just a concept that would work really well at the time because it was topical. So this film was about the Iraq war, to put it simply. Uh, It it revolved around themes of the war at the time. And uh, yeah, I wrote it and then I started calling around people that I knew. I I, I went to college with this other chick who had uh, written and directed a short film that got to Sundance. Mm -hmm. And so I emailed her and I was like, hey, I'm thinking of doing a short. Can you recommend a cinematographer? Or, you know, do you have any suggestions for people you know, to help me out with this thing. Um, and honestly, yeah, it was very, very, uh, you know, um, it was like, I kind of was thinking of it like a business. I was like, you know, like I could get some friends to help me. Right. Um, but I also didn't have like a lot of filmmaking friends. I just didn't, it wasn't a circle. It wasn't a thing that I was part of. I just knew I wanted to write and direct something. So she, she caught, she connected me with her producer and her producer's like, Oh, this guy, Aaron, uh, he's amazing. He's still kind of up and coming, so you could probably get him with a little bit of money. Mm-hmm. So Aaron was a, a cinematographer who had actually done already two projects that had played at Sundance. He, he had some connections going there. Yeah, yeah. And again, it was just like I'm gonna I'm gonna think of this smart. Like I'm not gonna get like some jackass off the street to shoot a short film. <laughs> you know, I'm gonna get somebody who knows what they're doing. Yeah. Um, so Aaron came on board, and then. Um, I had gone to South by Southwest the year before just for the fuck of it to watch films and I saw another short film um, that this actor Santiago Va- uh, Santiago Vasquez was in. He's Venezuelan. And I saw that short and I was like, damn, he would be really good to work with. Like, he's just really good. He was just some random dude. And so that's how I found my lead because he had been in a short at Sundance. Actually, it was I saw it at South by Southwest, but it had also played at Sundance. Mm-hmm. So my lead actor and my cinematographer both already have like Sundance projects under their belts. And I was like, I surround myself with like dope people, you know. Seems um, like you were building momentum and traction. Well, you know, they liked the script, so that helped. Yeah. And, you know, there was going to be a little bit of a budget. I wasn't like, you know, just some complete kid. I was already 
I wasn't like young, but I wasn't old. I mean, I was. I think it was like 27 at the time. I'm fucking 40 now. So you look very young. I'm. I'm I appreciate that. Wow. But <laughs> I'm 40, man. You, you age gracefully. Thank you. Thank I'm 28. You. Look how bald I am. Like, <laughs> I'm fucking 40. And, I, and all man. these wrinkles. <laughs> I'm 40. So at the time I was 27, and um, you know, luckily I had a good job. So I'm an engineer by trade. I, you know, I had a good job at the time, and I had was making a little money, and you know, had like some shit saved up or whatever. I had some stock options because I was I was working in tech. You know, I had and luckily, like when I got my first job in tech, like I got some stock. And uh, by the time I was planning to make this, I was like, I could put a little money into this. Like, fuck it. So I had a budget. And basically, when I approached people, I think a like they just were like, whoa, this guy has his shit together. Like I would show them a budget yeah. and I would show them a schedule. And it was in Microsoft Excel. Yeah. And they'd be like, this guy, like most people in film who are doing their first short, they're, they don't know what the fuck they're doing. Right. You right. know, it's like dreamers. and. Well, you'd be surprised. Uh, I've, I've been in some sets where they're supposedly experienced filmmakers, and they don't even have, you know, a log list for, like, the audio. Or film. Oh, I know. So, yeah. so, so it's like, it, it varies, you yeah. know. No, it totally varies. It, it, but, yeah. but I think when you're in that world, when you're in the kind of sub-professional filmmaking world, and you're oh, you're just trying to get gigs mm. like you're like people hitting you up on Craigslist or you're trying to find jobs on Craigslist. Yeah. Most of it is garbage. <laughs> it really is. Like because yeah. like my editor when I found him he was like oh my god like it's like so refreshing to work with you like you show up on time you have all the drives everything's yeah. organized you know so I think a lot of people were like oh well I'm not gonna get fucked over at least <laughs> like hopefully yeah. the guy will pay me and well, stuff. Organization goes a long way. Yeah yeah a yeah long way. Yeah so. Long story short, like, you know, I got a really good team together. We put a little bit of money into it. It's all my money. Uh, my wife, who's now my, now my wife, she was a girlfriend at the time, um, had produced some stuff for TV. Like, she, she had some summer jobs working, like, reality TV. So she was a really good producer already. She knew how to organize shit. She helped with the shoot. She gave me great feedback on the script. Um, and she, um, we went back to Texas, where I'm from. We put that shoot together. We shot it over 10 days. And then, uh, yeah, I, I basically took four months of, of time off of work at the time just to do this project. And it kind of came together. So when we submitted to Sundance, we're like, that's it. Like, let's see. Let's see what happens. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, fucking two months later, like, got into Sundance. Like, so this shit. is your first film. Like, yeah. f- like completed that, that. I had done, like, this really wacky little, not wacky, like, I would say more whack than wacky. <laughs> I had done a short like a few years before just screwing around with a couple of friends trying to be serious but it was pretty shitty and I had screwed around in college like um, we had like a campus TV station so I, my two of my friends had like a like a kind of sketch comedy show where they would do stupid stuff and I would shoot for them and edit it a couple of little pieces but it was the first like let's point like point about, like serious like let's do a short you know yeah um and where you have a whole crew and all that sort of stuff and then the intent being like let's get it into a festival sort of thing um the other stuff was just kind of screwing around so yeah it was the first one and uh it was crazy it was a crazy couple years there because it opened a lot of doors yeah and you know um yeah it played at like over 30 festivals that year wow Um, it it, it, the film itself really gained gained traction as well in the film festival circuit yeah yeah how was it going to Sundance though I'm like I mean I, I think there's a certain elation you have when you yeah. watch your whole, like your film on the big screen yeah it's crazy in front of an audience it's fucking crazy yeah and I, I probably you know in retrospect was not prepared like as a, a filmmaker should be for that sort of situation mm-hmm. like I mean I, we just went out there and partied honestly <laughs> like 
fucking was like drunk for like two weeks like at Sundance like going to the the screenings like hungover like you know it was like cool like it was awesome obviously like it was a, an amazing experience to see it there but you know pro- like most people say like if you if you're gonna do that and if you get a it's kind of hard to think and to have this already but people are always like make sure you go with another script ready mm-hmm that way like when you have a meeting out there you'd be like oh I have this script and you try to find money for the next project yeah right um, I didn't have another script ready uh, you know I had like some ideas for shorts and stuff like that but I didn't have like a feature length script and that's really what you want to be doing right is you want to do a feature length script like shorts you're not going to make any money you're not going to it's a it's a calling card right and so it, it definitely served as that and I got a lot of meetings and like agents would talk to me and stuff but the short wasn't so like amazing that like I got signed by like some one of these big agencies that happens sometimes if you do like a short that's just like holy shit like this guy's the next new talent or whatever the fuck like you know mm-hmm. you got a deal with CAA or WMA or something like that nothing like that happened people were definitely down to like meet and talk and hear ideas but I didn't have another script ready to go so that was kind of stupid um, you well, know well you didn't know any better I mean it was such a, a big I mean completing a film like in general is like hard yeah, and it's like just the idea of now that's done, which itself is a hard phase. Now it's about distribution, it's about like you know putting it out there, yeah. which is a whole new level yeah. of like yeah, yeah. It, it's you know it's a very like the, the the other thing about I would say like film and media and uh, TV and the, the old digital media industry, especially at the time and even now, it's still it it's it's very much in a state of like like a very loose ground like people were trying to figure things out you know in terms of like oh like are we going to be putting everything online now mm-hmm. or you know netflix was barely switching to digital at the time there was just a lot of uncertainty about the film industry at the time because it was it was very clearly changing from something that was more traditional right to the digital space and now it's completely different you know now most people want to work in tv because you want to do a series you know you want to do your atlanta or you want to do a netflix movie a netflix show Mm-hmm. Um, there's certainly still people who are uh, active in, you know, features and people who just want to do features, but it's a lot harder to just do a feature. Definitely an independent feature. Right. Now, it's but you went to school in Stanford, right? Yeah. For engineering. Yeah. Which is a big accomplishment and it's like and especially here that's like a big deal. Uh what what was that that moment you're like I want to transition to film? Yeah, there wasn't really, like, one moment. I mean, I always knew I loved film, and I loved, like... I mean, I grew up basically, like, an 80s kid, like, latchkey kid watching TV all the time. Like, we had cable ever since I was, like, six. And I was, like, watching HBO and, like, all this shit all the time. Just mm-hmm. always watching TV and, like, movies and stuff. So I always loved that stuff. Um, but I think when I went to college, like, I was always pushed into math and science. Like, I was always good at it, you know? Uh, my teachers always, like, push me in that direction and I and I liked it you know I did enjoy it. I like the sciences and I like I like the certainty of it you know um I was never a great writer growing up I think that might have something to do with growing up like in a kind of an English as a second language household you know I grew up speaking Spanish to my parents mm. you know where in Texas did you grow up in Fort Worth Fort Worth yeah Fort Worth so North Texas but yeah my parents you know you know I'm first generation uh so anyway like I went to college, and my main thing I think was I got to get a job when I graduate. I got some. There's got to be some reality to. There's got to be like a like a very obvious outcome to me going to college. Right. I don't want to come out not knowing what I can do. 
Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I'll be totally honest with you. I remember, like, when, when I was a freshman, my roommate was also going to be, he was also a, a Chicano. Um, he was from Phoenix. And we were both kind of on the fence as to what we were going to major in. And I remember we were looking at, I don't remember what magazine or what it was, but we are like, damn, this is how much electrical engineers make a year and this is how much a mechanical engineer makes a year yeah and this is how much a cs person makes a year we're like damn dude that's a fucking lot of bank dude yeah. like we got to do something like that you know we're i mean we're, we we want to do something we like but i mean it was literally as simple as that like we got to make some fucking money you got to follow the money you got to follow the money you know yeah, yeah. like growing up struggling especially like i mean my parents helped me with college some but not much oh, like yeah. they would help me like a few hundred bucks like every semester like for clothes or for some books or something like that. Mm-hmm. The rest was thankfully like Stanford has great like need based financial aid. So mm-hmm. I got a lot of scholarships through Stanford, all just because like based on like my parents' income. Were you the oldest of the family? No, no, I was the third. So there's four of us. Third. So I was the and third. And you were the first to go to college. Out of our immediate family, um, or at least the caliber like Stanford University. Yeah, my my older sister went to community college. Um, she didn't finish. My older brother uh, went into the Marines mm-hmm. uh, pretty much like a year after high school. Did um, he serve in Iraq? No. He was kind of in that in-between phase. Like I said, we're a little older, so he's a little older than me. Oh, so it's but after the Gulf War? After the Gulf War, but before... The, the Clinton the years. Yeah, he was after... Yeah, yeah, He was like in the dope period for joining. <laughs> like, yeah, 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 you know? Yeah. Um, okay. So he got... He got. Uh, he was in there for a, a good spot, you know? Well, um, uh, what line of work were your parents in? My dad... Um, basically, f- uh, auto body. He fixes cars. Blue collar guy. Fixes cars. My dad has first grade education, so he fixes cars. Um, works in stores that sell auto paint supplies. Uh-huh. Basically, the auto, of, you know, auto body business. Did you work? I'm sure you worked with him. Yeah, occasionally. I fucking hated it. Really? Yeah, I, you, you, tell me honestly, I fucking you, hated it. Yeah. You didn't like working on cars. Not really, no. I have told you, it's very bizarre that I'm a mechanical engineer. Yeah, now. like I'm like, wait, you studied yeah. engineering? I figured there was no, a connection no, there. No, no, you know, people have asked that. No, I, I hated it because it was like it was. It's very like, as a kid, you know, it's just dirty work. Like it's not like you're designing a car. You're right. just taking apart a car that's crashed. I'm not saying it doesn't take skill, because it does take a lot of skill, especially the painting part. But I mean, you're taking apart a car that's crashed. You're replacing parts. You're painting it. You're sanding a car. You're dirty. It smells like paint. I just remember, like, I used to be a bitch, man. I used to go over there. He'd make me help him. And I'd be like, you know, Alejandro, like, you'd be, yeah, like, sanding. half-assing it? Half, no, totally half-assing it. Yeah, yeah. Half-assing Alejandro the car. And then, like, I get headaches. Like, it smelled like paint. Yeah, and it probably isn't shit that kids should be around. I mean, they don't know any those better. those chemicals and yeah, paint I mean, thinners? Yeah, you got paint thinner. You got Bondo. You got fucking primer. Yeah. You got the, all the paint. Uh, it's not like we were inside while he was painting, so it's not like he was being abusive or anything, but you're around it all, and yeah. I did not like it. My older brother was much better at it, much more disciplined, and like, you know, would actually be over there for like, probably like 20 hours a week growing up, you know? Yeah. My dad would drag me over there, like, god damn, you know? I just wanted to like, be outside playing or like reading or watching TV. Uh-huh. I'd be, I was like a little shithead, you know? Um, How about your mom? My mom was a housekeeper. Mm. My mom, yeah. Did you also help her out? No. No, that was kind of like, basically like my mom would take us to school and then she would go uh, to one of the houses she worked at, like on the west side of Fort Worth. And she would work, you know, maybe from like, I would say like, I don't know, like nine to like 2.30. Like she'd do like one house a day. Yeah. Not like in the Bay Area now, it's funny, like housekeeping, they're like crews. They come to your house like three, three senoras and yeah. they fucking do your house in like an hour. Yeah. 
Yeah. Like that's how they work. Like a lot, I mean, I'm sure some people have like, you know, personal maids and that's kind of what my mom was like. She had like a couple of houses that she worked at and she would just go do the house all day. And then she would pick us up from school. Having those kind of parents, I'm not sure really developed a good work ethic in you. That, that kind of helped that you is true. get through college, I'm sure. That is the one thing that I can definitely attribute to my parents and, and my dad in particular. He was just like, you know, you can be anything but lazy. <laughs> like you're a fucking piece of shit if you're lazy. How, how did they take it that you had to move to California for your for school? They were cool, man. They were always very supportive. They they you know they didn't know. They didn't really know about Stanford. They didn't know like it's not like they were like, hey, you should go to Stanford. Like I'm the one who told them about Stanford, and other people told me about it because I didn't know about it either. Mm-hmm. I just like luckily always had like a few good teachers who made a big difference in terms of like, yo, you should get into this summer program. You should do this. And da, da 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 like you know there was probably like four educators who were instrumental in my um you know public education who really made a big difference first was like my first grade teacher miss Guajardo, who basically at some point told my mom like you need to get jesus and erica who's my younger sister you need to get them out of the school they need to be in a better school oh so they saw the potential yeah so my first grade teacher basically got us into the magnet gifted education program for our school district she got us into another school and then uh, in high school there were a number of people one of them was uh, my high school my freshman geometry teacher who basically was like yo you need to do the summer program in Massachusetts I know you never heard of this but just fill out this application I'll write a letter of recommendation get your parents to sign this thing um, so I did a summer program in Massachusetts for three summers of my high school years I'd just go do a math a science and a writing class all summer and it was a, like the scholarship thing at a boarding school in Massachusetts. Hmm. So he made a big difference. I mean, I had no idea about this. <laughs> you just go with the flow? I mean, I was just like, dope. I'll go somewhere else. I, I mean, I, I was in ninth grade at that time. I, I'd never been on an airplane. Yeah. I'd never been out of state. How was that experience? It was crazy. You know, I, it, was, it was beautiful. Like, it was like awesome. Like, for free. They sent me an airplane ticket. And then I, here I go. Yeah. And I'm meeting kids from like all over the world. And I got like a roommate that that like my freshman year at, at that summer program. I had a roommate from Spain and I had a roommate from Germany. Yeah. And I was like, damn, this is crazy. It's pretty eye opening. Yeah, it yeah. was extremely eye opening. And then there, there was like a college counselor who was our third year college counselor. Our third year, you did a math, a science, and then how to apply to college. And they teach you like you know how to write an essay and all that sort of shit. And there, like somebody told me about Stanford. I never heard of Stanford. Hmm. I you know, I heard of the colleges in Texas, maybe. So like in Fort Worth, it was like, oh, TCU, you got to go to TCU. It's like the best school, you know, because it's like where the rich kids go mm. and maybe go to UT or Texas A&M. You know, these are good schools. Where the richer kids go. Well, the <laughs> CCU is like where the, TCU is basically like USC yeah. of Texas. So they're like little shithead rich kids. Yeah. It's not a bad school. <laughs> it's a good, it's a decent school, yeah. but they're like snobby kids yeah. and they're not the smartest, but there's a mix of smart kids and then there's just rich kids. They're, they're the uh, UCLA-like. USC. USC like. It's like driving beamers, <laughs> you know. Daddy, so, daddy but, but you ended up going to one of the richest ones in Stanford. Yeah. How was that culture shock? That was very difficult, yeah. That was very difficult, I think. What but, made it difficult? Um, well, the caliber, not just that their kids are richer, because there were definitely some rich kids there, but more than anything, some really fucking smart kids. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, I, I got... I went to good a, a good public school, but it wasn't great. But I, I literally, I had no AP credits when I left, when I graduated high school. Even though I was like, went Stanford, I had zero AP credits. And I got to a place where some of my classmates had like 40 AP credits. Holy shit. You know, 
most of them probably had like 20 was probably average and then you had some kids who had like they were basically already sophomores and aside from that they were just really fucking smart like especially in like the engineering classes and stuff uh-huh. where it's very obvious it was very intimidating it's not intimidating as much as it is frustrating yeah you're just like god i don't know this like everybody knows this shit already like i started in one math class and i was in it for a week and a half or two weeks and i was like nope not ready and and i had like i knew that i was gonna get a shock so like after my senior year of high school even after that before i got to stanford i took uh like a some calculus class at my junior college in texas before i came to stanford i was like i gotta take another class just to be ready and in that class i fucking rocked it like i mean i was like killing it and like people were like asking me questions whatever right but basically you go from being like you know a big fish in a small pond to being like a little fish in a big pond now Mm -hmm. it's like you take the game up a notch and i'm sure this this is a very common thing when you go to like one of these schools but you know everybody's SATs like my high school I was probably on the I didn't have a great SAT score but for my high school I probably did mm. but then when I got to Stanford I was probably on the very lower end of the SAT curve probably didn't help that there's a few Chicanos over there as well in Stanford you know the, there were more Chicanos at Stanford there were, than there would be at any other top tier school and that was one of the reasons why I chose it um, because when I went and visited uh, before I mean I applied I had never visited but when I got in they have a admit weekend pro for prospective freshman and they actually paid they, they bought me a ticket and they said come visit the school so i came for a weekend and uh, actually there was a kid from my neighborhood um who i'd grown up with who was a real nerd too and he had already come to stanford and i stayed with him he's two years older than me so juan flores shout out to him no juan aguayo and juan flores both those right <laughs> here. um but i stayed with juan aguayo and uh like they were partying and it was like I don't know if you've been to like Casa Zapata mm. or like Casa Zapata is like the Chicano Latino theme dorm and it's like very culture like heavy it's dope is that in campus? yeah yeah Casa yeah. Zapata yeah Casa Zapata I, I've only went to Stanford to once like really in the campus once yeah. to perform stand up at the cafe Coho Coho yeah yeah, uh, yeah they had like yeah. a little stand up thing going there yeah it was pretty nice yeah no it's a beautiful place but well dude i went to sjsu so we're like ah, we don't hang out with the stanford kids <laughs> it's it's uh it's weird how it's so uh colleges are just separated out here you know no but we're chill i mean i'm chill with, with no i think everybody is chill about it you yeah. know uh it's not like competitive it's just like people don't mix you know I don't even think we're on the same level as SJSU <laughs> and Stanford. We're, uh, we're just happy we're in in university at SJSU, you know. But yeah, but, it, it, you know it's it's shocking. It's mostly I I will say this. Let me just finish by saying that like the Chicano Latino community at Stanford is great. Mm-hmm. It's actually very supportive, and it's probably the, one of the only ways I survived is we like stick together and help each other out. I was part of like SCLES, which is Stanford Chicano Latino Engineers and Scientists uh, organization, mm-hmm. Mecha. I was part of, um, what the fuck else was I part of? Those two my, were my big groups. SACNAS? Is that one? No. Sac- no. No. SCLES is part of SHIP, which is Society of Hispanic Professional Engineers. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, SCLES, we met every Friday. We, uh, we had a, a budget that the school paid for and donors. And every Friday, we'd have, like, free lunch, burritos, and then we'd have a guest speaker, like, somebody from the industry. And, you know, people helped each other out. We had, like, free tutoring uh, there's a guy over in Stanford uh, School of Engineering named Noe Lozano, who is very committed to uh, bringing uh, graduate students of color into the School of Engineering. So there's a very strong support system. 
and there's a help for all of us. And like, I just remember like, man, we'd have study sessions and helping each other out. And it was all Chicanos, it was all Mexicans, like helping each other out, mm. pulling late nights in El Centro Chicano, working on our problem sets. Dude, I don't know how to do this, help me. And there was a, there was a few who were like really smart, a few Chicanos, it's not like we're all fucking dummies. There was always, a, there was like that, that one or two, like, oh, for double E, you gotta call, you know, Jorge, like that fool got that shit down. So he would be the tutor or whatever. <laughs> don't call me, because I don't got that. <laughs> call the other Jorge. <laughs> I, I, I took one calculus class when I was going to De Anza, and like the first day I was like, no, I, I don't, I don't have to take this. I'm good. <laughs> but, uh, but so it looks like you're, you're in it. You're in Stanford. You're studying engineering. You, it seems like you, you're getting to the field. Then you decide to, yeah. to make the film. And that, I guess that kind of just, that passion took over. Well, it's, it's been a balance since then because, uh, engineering pays the bills, you know? Yeah. Um, and at the time, you know, it certainly paid for the film. And it allowed me to do what I needed to do there without being a starving artist, without having to ask for a lot of crazy favors. I mean, I definitely asked for a lot of favors. Let's let's not assume that. A lot of people helped me. Well, what's interesting is that you also developed a web series, which is which which you had uh, you shot locally here in San Jose, yeah, yeah. and you had Chingo Bling on it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So tell me how the inception yeah. of that idea and and yeah. uh, and well, making it. Yeah. So so after we did. Um, after we did uh, the Grass Girls Green, I did two other shorts, and like I said, I, I had a screenplay, or I have a screenplay for a feature that I wrote, and that got into the Sundance Labs as part of a producing program. We tried to raise money for it. I got really frustrated. Spent like three or four years trying to get that thing going. Nothing happened. And then at some point, you know, you start seeing all this stuff on YouTube, people doing shit on Instagram, Snapchat, Vine at the time. And you're just like, man, like, these fools are getting like so many more views than anything I've ever done and I, and they're just doing it like fucking around you know <laughs> like people are just making shit and putting it on YouTube and getting tens of thousands of views and I was thinking like man I made this short film and it got into Sundance and I did the calculation I was like I bet I bet like 5,000 people have seen that short film because like think about like every theater is like you know a hundred people and that film I didn't have it online and I was just like, I gotta do, some, we gotta do something online, you know. Fuck this, like I gotta, I want to keep making stuff. I know there's an audience for what I want to make. I want to do something a little different, and that's when this model came about. And so my cousin Sammy at the time was graduating from college. He's a bit younger than I am because this is only like five years ago, and uh, he was starting to do some filmmaking stuff that was pretty dope. And I was like, Yo, I have this idea. We can start this YouTube channel, website, and we'll just start making some videos, and it'll be like our brand. And eventually, if this grows enough, you know, we can get sponsors, we can do all this stuff, and we can build out, like, this kind of, like, this hybrid funnier die meets vice, you know? Yeah, is your cousin's also Juan Yerbas? Yeah. Is that the... Yeah, that's the, the char- his character. character. Yeah. Yeah, I was very impressed how yeah. stylized and how well put together you guys put things. Yeah. You know, yeah. especially, like, the field interviews he does. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, the first part was, like, well, what are we going to make? You know, what kind of videos are we going to make? And so we kind of created this slate where we'll, we do some little documentaries. Uh, I want to do a web series, like something like some stuff that's cinematic, you know, um, ghetto cinematic, if you will. Uh, low, ghetto cinematic. Ghetto cinematic, low budget cinematic, you know, do it ourselves. There, there's indie filmmaking and yeah. then there's ghetto cinematic. Ghetto cinematic, yeah. <laughs> um, so we, you know, we came up with like a list of different ideas and then uh, we said we got to get somebody with a name involved, like an actor, you know, and 
uh, not only for the series, but also for Desmadre, like get somebody else on board to give us a little push as we launch. You know, again, thinking of it like a business, mm-hmm. very much thought of it like as a startup, like a digital media startup. We raised a little bit of money. I had a few friends who put some money in to get it going. And then uh, the thing with Masa and the Power was like, we want to do like a series that's funny, that's kind of, you know, obviously, uh, again, ghetto cinematic, but something that would work well on digital and where people would get it and it was kind of tailored like for our audience. Like what, what would we want to see, you know? And that came about honestly very simple because at the time um, there was a movie with, um, it was like set in the 70s. Um, what the fuck was it called? Um, this was about four years ago in the fall. Uh, it was like a... Anyway, it was inspired by this movie that was set in the 70s. It was like a heist movie. It had um, Brad, uh, Bradley Cooper. Um, American Hustle? American Hustle. Uh, it's a David O. Russell film. David right? O. Russell film, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. So I remember I, I was at the movies and I saw a trailer for American Hustle. And I was just like, it just hit me. I was like, that's it. I was like, it's going to be like a, a show set in the 70s. And it's going to be like a drug thing, but it's not. And, you know, we had thought about who could be like one of the actors or talent we work with. And one of them was Chingo. And I said, okay, and we have Chingo as the lead. And so you already knew Chingo by then? No. Never met him. But you're like, oh, yeah, that that rapper. He could do the, it. The rapper, comedian. Like, I said, this guy could do it. Like, because he was already doing some YouTube videos that okay. were funny, you know? And he was getting a lot of traction on Facebook and stuff like that. And uh, so I put we put together the little business plan for Desmadre. And, the you know, part of that was Mas and the Power, our first web series for Desmadre, starring Chingo Bling. And I wrote the first episode. Um... You know, Sammy was going to help shoot and produce and all this stuff. He wasn't even going to be acting in the shit back then. It was just like he's part of the the behind the scenes team. You know, he helped a little bit with the writing on that first episode, and it was just like, yeah, this is dope. We should do it. You know, and then I literally just emailed Jingo. You know, found his email, and at the time he was in L.A. and I just went to L.A. and we met for fucking coffee brunch, and I just pitched him the the idea, and I said, I got a little bit of money. I can't really pay you much. You know, I'll pay you a couple, I think it was like a, hundred, a couple hundred bucks or something, whatever it was. But um, I'll give you a percentage ownership of the project. If mm-hmm. this thing ever goes to TV or a film, you own this much of Masa and the Power. And uh, he was like, yeah, let's do it. Dope. How was it meeting him? Like, kind of. It was cool. I mean, yeah. Chingo is a businessman. You yeah. know, he's a talented dude. He's very creative, but he's also like a fucking businessman. And, you know, he kind of, he's a kind of guy that's not going to, you know, if he senses some bullshit, he's not going to get involved. He's mm-hmm. been through enough. Well, he's been through enough shit where he knows like this guy's full of crap or whatever. And similar to what I was saying earlier, I think he saw that we were really organized and serious about doing this the right way. Um, that he's like, yeah, I'm down. And he just he was at the time like really trying to do acting stuff too. So this is before he started his stand up stuff, and he was in L.A. trying to just like he was doing like, you know, just going to auditions and trying to. He had done a movie called Philly Brown which is really popular, which played at Sundance. So he was just trying to act, and this was an opportunity for him to be to carry a show. Digital, ghetto, cinematic, com. but you know he was going to be the lead. Yeah. And he liked the script. He's like, yeah, this is dope. I'll do this. Uh-huh. So we shot the first one. We I flew him out here. We shot it over a weekend or two days or whatever. And we cut the first one together, and we are like, damn, this is actually pretty dope. Like, this works. And so um, we wrote five more episodes and with the money that we had raised we shot the rest of those we flew him out 
we flew we cut we shot the first one as like a prototype and we had him and Wayne who's the white guy um and then uh we had um who's the other two guys so the other one was um we had this Asian dude and and the, another guy who was like the the villain or whatever but anyway long story short like after the first episode the Asian dude didn't want to be an actor in the show anymore uh. And like you know, he was doing stupid shit. Now he's actually doing really well. Like he's you look him up. He's done like he's doing some big shows and shit like that. Uh-huh. So he, I think he just didn't want to do this fucking wacky shit. You know, he thought it was like he don't want to be part of the ghetto cinema. He didn't want to be part of the ghetto cinema. <laughs> yeah, uh, but he was a cool. He's a cool dude. Yeah. Um, that's when Sammy came into the equation. Oh, he took over his role. Yeah, we yeah. changed it. We but we need we still needed a, another person like for that trio so it was going to be uh sam uh chingo as felipe fernando fernandez wayne who's his white attorney business partner and then a uh, third person and at first it was like this asian guy with an afro it was pretty cartoony uh so i can understand maybe he didn't want to do it but then we're like oh like we got to have like a pothead like and it's going to be Juan Yerba, so he's like this Mexican, like you know paisa who's like a, a gardener but he's really into growing weed Mm. and then uh, we had shot some other little bullshit skits with Sammy just messing around he and I and we're like fuck dude you're actually really good at this and so he started he switched in front of the camera and he was also one of the writers and producers of the show because again we're working on all this this other stuff together so now he's in front of the camera and we created one Yerbas for Masa and the Power um, and yeah people loved the Juan Yerbas character you know, they loved all of them. Felipe Fernando, you know, Chingo's character, Sammy's character, Juan Yerbas, and, and Jerry, who played uh, Wayne. Uh, they really took off to the point where, like, we did a Kickstarter for the second season. You know, we did the first season, paid for it basically ourselves with the people that had funded an- initially. And then the second season, we did a, a Kickstarter and raised, like, $30,000 to do eight episodes. Um, I think it was eight episodes. Yeah, about an hour's worth of content. So each episode is like five to eight minutes long or something like that. Um, and that's how we shot the second episode, second season, I should say. Um, and that's where it's le- that's where it stayed. But I mean, the great thing about that was that it did allow us to cre- create kind of a new world, new characters, play around, um, try to make something that was cinematic but not take ourselves too seriously, mm. um, and really kind of not be tied to the conventions of like I don't know reality in many ways because like it was set in the 70s but we would shoot outside and you'd see cars you know <laughs> well, you shot at the Alameda well, yeah like, we shot I, all I the, noticed the location yeah, at least the pilot yeah yeah the pilot was at the Alameda yeah yeah and that looked 70s-ish uh-huh. but in a lot of other scenes like you see like you know a, a Prius in the shot and it's the 70s you know right. so that we would just like kind of ignored a lot of things we're like fuck it who cares it's this fucking web series you know <laughs> and most people nobody was ever like oh I saw like a car or, you know I saw like a whatever well I mean once you set the tone there's gonna be like a fun thing yeah people can you know be yeah. very you know forgiving right. of it yeah yeah, I mean, yeah it's different if you try to do like a very serious tone yeah. and then you have all that shit in the background yeah, yeah. then you might have a problem yeah yeah so you know it, it was a, an opportunity to do something that um was fun and i hadn't done any comedy before that was the other thing like, like comedy sure. writing none of it none no, of it no comedy so you, you were like a serious writer then you were well grass goes green and the two other shorts i did are all serious they're not com- comedic at all so there's just a, a change of direction for you yeah did you find it challenging? Uh, no, I found it liberating. I found it fun. 
Okay. It's a lot. I, it's so much easier. I, I, I don't know. Maybe I sound like a dick saying that, but oh. it's just easier to, to like just fuck around and not worry about like, oh, what does this mean? Like, what is it? You know, what is the metaphor? Well, you, you, you can still apply those principles in comedy. Yeah, but you don't have to. You can just focus on fucking around and having fun. You know, uh-huh. like, it's much easier when when I mean, I think I think there is like some meaning to a lot of the stuff in our comedy, but um, it's just. I don't know. I think like a lot of filmmakers and writers take themselves way too seriously. Hmm. And I, I think I was like that at some point. Has, uh, has your creative process writing, how was it when you first started and how is it now? Like how's the evolution of it? Well, I haven't written drama stuff in a long time, so I don't know how that's going to be different if I try it again. Um, you know, I think you, you can overanalyze when you're writing drama because again you're thinking like every little thing counts and like you read all these filmmaking books and like oh what was the symbolism or what was the why did he you know wear the handkerchief like this or like you know what does this mean and like you, there's so much intent with everything well uh, I, I, I do notice that some young screenwriters think write, screenwriting and directing are the same thing where a lot of times they're not because I it's, yeah. don't forget the screenwriting at the end of the day it's a blueprint sure once sure. you're directing, you know, you could change stuff here and there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it totally depends, I think. Like, I, everything I've written, I've written mostly so I can direct myself. Mm-hmm. So I'm always thinking as the final product. I'm not thinking, like, I'm going to hand this over to anyone. So I, don't, I couldn't even tell you what that's like. So you weren't in the business of selling scripts. You just want to create scripts to, to for you yeah, to produce. Yeah, to go make, yeah. And make, okay. For me to direct myself. I don't want to write for anybody else. I don't really. Okay. Yeah, I'm not. I mean, there's nothing it's not, wrong with that. Not your thing? I mean, sure, if, if somebody was like, hey, write me a screenplay and I'm going to give you fucking 50K or something, I'll, I'll fucking write something. But mostly, like, I just want to write to try to make something. Like, uh-huh. that's the fun part. Like, right. making uh-huh. it and, like, sharing it with people and working with the actors and, like, fucking around on set. I mean, the nice thing about comedy is uh, that I've discovered so far is that because it's it feels looser, um, uh, it is much more of a starting point than drama uh the screenplay is for me anyway because i like uh the improvisation side of of when you're at finally on the set mm-hmm. like okay this is these lines are the starting point guys and we we would do a, a take a few takes as written then i'd be like all right start fucking around just throw some other stuff out there and we did a lot of that on Moss and the power mm-hmm. and that's a lot of fun and you start writing on the set too even if you're not in front of the camera you'd be like oh no 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 say this oh yeah that's funny Da, 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 da. So it becomes a collaborative writing, directing, acting thing on the set. And that's a lot of fun. I mean, it, it definitely is like funner being on a comedy set than it is a drama set. Like, mm-hmm. you just have to be in touch with your emotions. Like, no, you just go fucking have fun, you know? And I think, you know, when you're doing like a drama thing, you're like, I don't know. It's, it, I maybe well, just making assumptions about film directors. <laughs> did you have any mentors in film? They like did you get on like any screenwriters that helped you out? Um, not like a mentor, not anybody like truly like. Um, no, I mean I would say the closest thing to it, like as I've written over the f- the few things I've written, again like my wife is always like a good point of feedback. She mm-hmm. you know eventually reads something and gives me feedback. Um, and she's very brutal and honest about stuff. Um, when I worked with, when I worked on my feature length screenplay, which I worked on the writing for literally like three years or more, like draft after draft, there's probably like 25 drafts of that fucking thing. 
it was her and then my producer for that project who's uh, named Amy Lowe and she was amazing and they were both very patient and very like critical and giving me feedback and trying to get it to the right point I mean I don't think it ever got there because we never raised the money for it but certainly helped me develop as a writer going through all those drafts and getting feedback um but yeah you get to a point certainly with screenplays where like gosh like you should just stop asking you should just do like three drafts and like be done with it. <laughs> there's a lot of frustration yeah know? just trying to come up with the story and then collaborating and then putting things together such as the money and the other stuff it's it, it ain't easy and sometimes it, it does take uh more than just one person you know oh you definitely need more person than that but in terms of the writing process like you know there's a certain point where it's probably not going to get any better mm. i mean if it's a good idea great and then it's all about the execution and like you know if you're a good writer obviously like if you're a starting writer i think things can improve but if you're a well-formed writer and you kind of got your process down and whatever like i mean i know screenwriters who show me their scripts and i'm just like this is bad like mm, it's not gonna get any better i don't, I don't know <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah I, you, you know so yeah. you gotta cut your you gotta figure out when to i I've been there. I, I was uh i interned for the cinequest film festival okay yeah and i took care of the screenplay competition okay so i, I was kind of the one you know filtering through that yeah and making sure the system's going good and yeah there were some screenplays where i just wanted to punch the screen yeah I'm like what the fuck are, are you yeah. thinking yeah uh but then you know when you read a good screenplay though it's like oh, wow yeah. like i think yeah. it's especially when you're another screenwriting screenwriter reading another great screenplay it's like it kind of reinvigorates yeah it's like oh my god this is how it looks yeah yeah if you read enough screenplays you know the difference between a good and a bad screenplay you know i think you you very quickly pick up on tropes, um, formulas, things mm. that like everybody does. And you're like, ah, oh, this sounds like everything else. And then you see something that's original or that has some sort of unique vision, and you're like, oh wow, okay, this is mm. dope. And it may not be perfect, but it, it's different. It stands out. Um, but yeah, I, I've only written one feature-length screenplay, and you know, it's it's uh, it was a, a Somewhat of a traumatic experience, quite frankly, because it took so many years and it never got made. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. No, uh, it's just the nature of the beast. But that right now, like, I'm trying to, I'm kind of like putting my feet in, my toe. And I have like an idea for a couple of, of screenplays, and I'm like, God damn it, like, am I going to commit to doing this? Because it's such a long process. Yeah, I hear you. And, and the other question is, like, oh, do I want to do a feature or do I want to keep, like, trying to develop digital stuff with the idea of, like, maybe doing a TV show? Well, I think the great thing that you're doing is that you're staying productive yeah I mean although you you have that screenplay and film world you're also you know dealing with the desmadre platform yeah, yeah. which I'm sure you produce content uh, and it, I, I think that really helps people out and that's something I try to tell young young filmmakers like yeah. just do, do it yeah. do it and if you can't do it do something else don't yeah. stop because once you're in that mode where you're stagnating it's the worst thing in the yeah. world. That's like hell. Yeah. It's like, like how do you even get the fuck out of it? You get, like, I, w- I would get depressed. Yeah. And I think podcasting is something that really helped me with that. You yeah. Know, just to feel more productive and yeah. a sense of forward motion in, in my creative stuff. Yeah. Uh, uh, so tell me about your podcast. And, and pretty much, I know you told me earlier that you did out of frustration. Somewhat, yeah. I mean. Has it changed since? Yeah, it's. I think it's changing right now. Honestly, I mean, so we after we did Moss and the Power, we were trying. I was trying to raise money for Desmadre as a whole, and we were out there pitching like venture capital firms, like literally like Silicon Valley style. Like, I got a lot of meetings. 
we had a whole pitch deck we had a business plan blah blah um and the idea was to you know do something and like hire people and run a whole like little media company where this is our voice never raised the money very fucking difficult environment i mean funny or die just laid off most of its editorial staff yeah so the business is brutal it's very hard to make money on digital um so we dragged it out and tried to do that for a couple of years and we made most of the power. We started making these little viral videos, just random shit with Sammy and one Yerbas, just he and I making stuff. We took Yerbas character out of Mas and the Power mm-hmm. and we did the man on the street stuff. Mm-hmm. And then in 2016, we said, we're gonna do a weekly show. So we did El Mundo with Juan Yerbas, mm-hmm. which was basically like, uh, like, a, like a daily show, like a news roundup for the week where Juan Yerbas was the newscaster, five to 10 minutes long. Topics of the day, topics of the week, graphics, little gifts and videos, kind of like talk soup meets daily show sort of bullshit. We did that 50 weeks in a row. We did a whole fucking year of that. Holy shit. Yeah. They're pretty good. I, I was looking at them. Yeah. So we did that for... I was a, like, I didn't know this was happening. It was pretty cool. Yeah. We did that for a full year, 2016. And it looks like you really tapped into the Chicano culture through that. Yeah. I think we got a lot of fans. You know, it was definitely very... It was... The, the thing is, like, that sort of shit is not, like, quote-unquote viral because it's, like, 10 minutes long. And it's not, like, listicles. It's not BuzzFeedy. It's also not, you know, Me Too-ish. It's not fucking... I don't. I think we're, we have a distinct voice that's married, maybe, like, a little too aggressive for some people. But we had a few fans who were really hardcore fans. Mm. Like Too aggressive? Like, you had people going, like, whoa. Yeah, I mean, because, like, we don't... I mean, it's our voice. It's Sammy and I's voice. And, like, you know, we shit on the Pope. We shit on religion. We shit on everything, and there's no. It's not like that's the intent. Like, oh, we're just gonna shit on them. We just we're just fucking around. Yeah. And and you know, some people would be like, oh, like ya ya se pasaron. You know, you can't talk about Easter like <laughs> El Papa. That. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we did one. Well, where, well, what was this voice? Was there any like bitterness or anger behind it that people were like, whoa, hold your role? Or I mean, maybe a little. Do you feel bit. people were being too sensitive of the subject matter. Um. No, I mean, if you really believe that shit, you're probably not going to like the show. So I, we didn't give a fuck. But all that to say is that it's too, it's not, it's, it may be a little too, too much for some people, mm-hmm. you know, but we had the hardcore fans. Right. And the hardcore fans are like basically like Chicano, like stoners. But, you know, like you're going to have a lot of people in Texas who don't like us because they're a little more religious <laughs> or, you know, like we would like, you know, straight up say like we're like pro-abortion or something or like say shit like that. And people just people don't like that yeah. some people don't like that so we you know it was like you know some people hate the daily show because it's a liberal show mm. so in any case we did we did uh we did that um and that started opening some doors in terms of going to pitch to networks and that was like basically the decision at, at the end of 2016 it was like all right we're gonna stop el mundo on a weekly basis and we're going to put together a few pitches and just start taking meetings because we were getting the meetings. That was a great thing. Mm-hmm. You know, you can meet with, just think of like cable networks who this might go on, you know, whether it's like True TV or like Adult Swim or like Vice or, you know, Array, like people who might be interested in that stuff. We could set those meetings up. Mm-hmm. So we said, we'll focus on that. Try to get a show. And that was it. We're like, Let's try to get a fucking TV show, man. You know? And we have, like, a few ideas. We don't really talk about them on public because these are ideas that a network would eventually potentially purchase. Right. And then just pay us to produce. 
Um, so last year was an exercise in taking a lot of meetings, going to LA, pitching stuff, uh, developing like story, like season arcs, like pitching stuff like that, putting together budgets. Trying, we had one project in particular that got very far, mm-hmm. and then in terms of like we're about to shoot a pilot, and then it got canceled. So last year the intent was like let's do that let's try to get a show going right but at the time we were like well people are going to be like where the fuck are these guys because we're not making the mundo show every week yeah so then we started the podcast we're like we'll start the podcast that way at least we have a voice that's coming out on a regular basis but it's a little more less production heavy yeah less time intensive but we'll still make it our voice and um if we have time to do a video here and there we'll do that last year i think we did like five man on the streets or six man on the streets so like the cinco de mayo man on the street the pulga one we went to the trump rally all that sort of stuff um and that was it you know it was like let's go pitch so we spent a lot of time pitching and we're still doing that now now it's interesting that after you finished school in stanford you still stuck around the bay area and I figure someone with your experience and caliber and vision, uh, how come you feel you haven't made the move to, like, let's say, L.A. or Austin? Yeah. Where, where a, lot, a lot of those opportunities that you're seeking yeah. are at. Um, I like the weather here. No. <laughs> <laughs> I do love the weather here. Yeah. Um, I'm still in the engineering world, you know? I still make money doing engineering work. And um, because of, again, I sound like a dick, but I don't really want to be just like in the industry I, I don't want to like work on sets I don't have an interest in being a cinematographer I don't have an interest in being like necessarily just a writer mm-hmm. like I want to make my own shit and you can do that from wherever you are and I'm close enough to LA to go do a meeting and eventually like if we got a show and like they were like oh you have to do it in LA then of course I'll go to LA but right now I can still work as an engineer in my spare time yeah. <laughs> and not be like a starving artist uh-huh. you know um, the time during most of the time that we were doing this Madrid stuff like El Mundo and Mas and the Power I was an engineer part time I was a contractor so I was doing some stuff but I had a very flexible schedule mm-hmm. so I could go do that f- for a day or two and then focus on this Madrid stuff and my wife was really cool about it I was making enough money to kind of keep things going we had an agreement I'll do this for this long da 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 hopefully this Madrid will take off now I'm pretty much I'm working full time as an engineer and like half time as a filmmaker. Yeah. And okay. and pitching. And you know, basically like Sammy and I meet up three times a week now. You know, for like f- 4 to 6 hours every time. And then the rest of the week we're texting and we have Google Docs and we're working on shit together. And he's your cousin, right? Yeah, he's my cousin. How's yeah. that dynamic like? Like working with family? Um it's been cool as far as I'm concerned. I mean, it's, you know, I think maybe there's a there's there can be like some dynamics there like that that for some people would be tough but I mean for better or worse um, I'm 12 years older than he is he's 28 so oh he's my age yeah so he's you know but and I've always been like the older cousin so you know that probably from the beginning made it um, structured in a way that made it work. Because I was kind of like, I had, you know, like the business idea for this mother and I was coming with, I was working on the business plans and I had all the connections to get that going. And Sammy was just like, he was involved in all that, but he was just like hustling and he was just learning and he was just like, he was cool with kind of being like the, the co-founder, right? And it was, it's never felt like a struggle between us. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think, I'm not sure, but it may be because of the age difference. 
right? Because there's a little bit of respect. And for me, like, I'm also like, he's my cousin, so I don't give a shit. Like, I'm usually <laughs> like, you know, I'm not tripping about stuff. Yeah. Like, you know, and he's I He's reliable, you could trust him. Yeah, yeah. He's always been really reliable. You know, there's been a few times, but it's always been cool because we can talk about it. And then he listens to me because I'm like the older cousin. Mm-hmm. He's like, okay, dude, I'll, I'll, I got I get my shit together for this or that. Mm-hmm. You know, but um, no, it's it's been awesome. Like, none of it would have been possible without him. None of this. You know, he definitely works his ass off, and I think now it's becoming more of an equals thing because we've been working together for long enough, and it just feels more natural. Like we're working together as creative partners, mm-hmm. and I've always wanted somebody like that. And never, like I said, I've never been part of like this filmmaking community. I never went to film school. I never did this and that. So we've kind of created that ourselves <laughs> just because we're doing this experiment, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and who knows what will happen in the future. You know, he's thinking about going to L.A. Um, for me, I, I consider this home now. I love the Bay Area. Yeah. I don't necessarily think for what I want to do it's necessary to mm-hmm. move to L.A. It might be in the future. Yeah. But I don't want to go down there unless I have a real reason. Yeah. I'm the same way, Wayne. Like, yeah. I, I, I visit L.A. and it's like, you could just smell the, the heartbreak. You could just like, <laughs> the, the broken dreams. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, you know, baby steps, you know. Yeah. Especially when you don't have connections and you still want to work on your craft. Like, you know. Yeah. You, you just got to yeah. do what it, you can with what you have available to you. Yeah. I mean, stuff. I don't think it's a bad idea for, you know, if you do want to be like a cinematographer mm-hmm. or you do want to be like. Honestly, like, yeah, if you're a stand-up comedian, you got to jump in at some point. You got to do the L.A. thing. You got to, you know, or New York City, which is even more brutal, I think, for stand-ups. But um, for what I want to do, like, you know, we made Masa and the Power here. It didn't fucking matter. Yeah. We wrote it here. We, you know, we shot it here. And people didn't care, you know. It all goes out on the internet anyway. (laughs) Like, you know, most people don't, don't care. Um, All right, Jesus, we're closing up shop. We reached the hour mark. And uh, I I just, I think... uh, I think it's good stuff. You know, I, I saw your content. I think it's a great uh, addition to the South Bay culture. You know, the stuff you guys do. <laughs> We're uh, trying. But for the listeners who are not aware of your stuff, where can they find it? Yeah, you can just go to thismadre.com. So literally, you could start there on our website. And then we have links to our YouTube, our Instagram, our Twitter. Everything goes from there. I mean, we, we keep our YouTube active. Um, put the podcast on YouTube channel. We we also put it on iTunes and Stitcher and stuff. But um yeah, you could start at the at the website, desmadre.com. We have links to everything there. And uh yeah, appreciate it. Yeah. How'd you come up with Desmadre? Because I cracked up when I was like, oh wow, Desmadre. Yeah. I mean that's the reason because people are like, oh what the fuck is this gonna be? You know? <laughs> and that was actually the first one of the first challenges with what we we were like, oh what would we call this? Yeah. If we do this, you know, what what would we call our channel? or our you know brand and that one came up as an idea and we're like oh shit this would be dope and then luckily i found the owner of the url you know the the website domain and they had it parked and i don't know who it was but we bought it for pretty cheap Mm. i didn't buy it from like godaddy somebody already owned it you know so um we made an offer and we got it for pretty cheap and then that was it and it was like okay you know it's a weird word i think some people take it very think it's very aggressive or i don't know but i just i thought it was very funny yeah. and fitting yeah. <laughs> you know uh so uh dude thanks we're good yeah we're all good thanks what i appreciate me yeah you having us on having me on yeah thank you for coming yep Once again, check out the Desmadre podcast on YouTube, 
spelled D-E-S-M-A-D-R-E. Some really great stuff to check out. That's it for this week. Have a great Easter and have a great week and have a great life. I hope your life is amazing. If not, well, I hope you're hanging on. Just hang on there, bud. Hang on with all you got. Next week, we have a musician stopping over, the great Levi J. Oh, I gave up who, who it is. Usually, I like to keep it a surprise. But I'm kind of excited. We had a great talk about music and stuff. So uh, hang in there for next week. That's it. Have a good one. Sayonara.